Theron Garrity, and you're listening to The Laughs of Your Life, the podcast where I talk to influential people about laughter. From their first memories of laughter, to no laughing matter moments, to a time where they felt laughed at. Yeah, I know. There was like white underwear that had like, I guess when my mother washed it, there was like blue jeans had like leaked on it. So my underwear had become a little blue, I guess around where my penis would be. And uh, they were they sang Blue Moon to me for like three weeks, which of course, <laughs> like when you're 13 is like fucking hilarious. I don't know why it was hilarious, but I just remember being like so embarrassed that I was the Blue Moon guy. Comedian Des Bishop is my guest this week. He talks to me about moving to Ireland alone at the age of 14, using his testicular cancer diagnosis as stand-up material, and his love for ice cream. From big laughs to big wins, this season of the Laughs of Your Life podcast is brought to you by TK Maxx. I don't know about you, but I for one feel like I am winning at life when I find top quality for less while shopping at TK Maxx. This week, I nipped in to grab some bits for my week off work, and let's just say I did not hold back. I went in for a small wheelie suitcase and I came out with the wheelie suitcase, a new makeup bag, two pairs of earrings and a fab pair of metallic silver sliders that I'm going to wear with dresses and jeans and play suits, you name it, chuffed with myself. If you're planning on heading into store anytime soon, I dare you to come out of the shop with just one thing. It's impossible. Best of luck. Head into TK Maxx for big name brands to make you feel a million dollars. And now for my chat with Des Bishop. I hope you enjoy. Des Bishop, you are extremely welcome to the laughs of your life. Oh. Well, thank you for having me. Where in the world are you, Des? I'm in, I'm in New York City. Uh, it's uh, 11, 12 a.m. And if you hear any noises, it's just the noisiness of New York, you know? Oh, are you in a hotel? No, no, I, I, I'm in my apartment. I, like, I, I live here. <laughs> but you weren't there during lockdown. I know that. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah, I also have another house. I mean, basically, you're, you're sort of trying to out me as some sort of, like, ridiculously affluent white guy. You know, that's not the thing to be right now, dear. So uh, you, you have to sort of downplay uh, any sort of any, any, any positive things that are happening in your life. But no, no, I have a house on the beach in, in West Hampton, but I, I, I inherited that you know, from, from my parents. So, uh, you know, I, I was out there for a lot of the pandemic, but I also have an apartment in, in New York City where I am right now. But they were all really good value. Okay, are you ready to get going with your questions, Des? I, I, I am. Actually, it's funny. I, 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 I'm 45 now. I found, some of these questions are tough. You really have to go back in the, you have to go back in the memory bank, you know? <laughs> okay, we'll see how you fare. Des Bishop, your first memory of laughter now when i when i read this question i i i really have no distinct memory of like the first moment that i laughed so i just went with my instinct of what came into my head and i guess it has to be we used to make our father play batman with us which of course had re- very little to do with batman it was just him kind of throwing us on the bed you know and just like just silly kind of like messing around and we thought that was the most hilarious thing ever and that is really my first memory of like pure joy I don't know if that's exactly laughter which is hilarious because I'm in the laughter business but I have no distinct 
laughter memory, but I do remember myself and I guess my middle brother, I think my brother, my, my younger brother would have been too young, but I just remember the total joy when I go back visually to that moment of being on my parents' queen size bed and him throwing us around. It was just the funnest thing ever. So I guess that's my first memory of laughter. I mean, I must've been laughing later on we would destroy that bed ourselves by jumping off of my parents' bureau, pretending that we were Jimmy Superfly Snooker from the WWF. And we, we had a lot of memories on their bed, which then turned into drama because, uh, you know, my, my father had a bad back and he woke up with his back out and he was like, why is my bed not supporting him anymore? And he didn't realize that we had actually <laughs> broken his bed. So he was like <laughs> sleeping, uh, sleeping in a dip. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think that's my first, like, you know, memory of like laughing i couldn't remember any shows I, you know i couldn't remember like what is the thing that i used to laugh at when i was a kid you know it nothing jumped out at me that was the memory that came to my mind were you a joker as a child yeah i mean i definitely loved making people laugh and that would probably be a more distinct memory of just wanting to make people laugh being silly I remember in second grade, so I was like a really good student in first grade. Sister Electa was was my teacher in first grade. Hang on, and she what's, was. What's first grade in Irish equivalent? Oh, oh, sorry. You know, I'm very good at everything in terms of Irish equivalents from 14 on, but primary school stuff, I got to think that first grade is probably senior infants. Okay. I was like five years old. Five years old. Uh, no, that'd be that'd probably be junior infants. Okay. Potentially junior or senior infants, depending on, I'm not exactly sure, but Sister Electa, whatever memory comes into your mind when you hear the word Sister Electa, I can assure you it is correct. <laughs> she, was, <laughs> she was a tough nun, like a really, really tough nun. And she, everybody was afraid of her. Some parents wouldn't send their children to Sister Electa. My mother insisted that we went to Sister Electa, which will tell you a little bit about my mom. She was, she was like a tough Irish-American mother, like very much uh, spare the rod and spoil the child type upbringing. And uh, so uh, I was like, a, I was a premier student in Sister Electa's class, like the rigidity and the discipline suited me. And in second grade, halfway through second grade, our second grade teacher got pregnant uh, well, she, she had to leave because she was going to have a baby. And whatever teacher came in, she was not a disciplinarian. And I remember, don't remember what I did, but I remember the distinct moment where I made everybody laugh in the class. And that was the moment that I became a messer, you know? And yeah. by third grade, I was, by third grade, I was in the isolation row. You know, by third grade, they, they, they started isolating us, which is like the worst thing that you could possibly do. It's like, why are you putting me in a place that suggests that I'm special? <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they put me in the back, which is essentially where you can lead the charge of messing, you know? Uh, so, I, you know, I, I, I very quickly just, all my focus was on, on trying to make people laugh and get attention. Now, when I told Hannah, my fiance, this very difficult question of wh when's the first time do you remember laughing? She brought up a, a different story, which to me is kind of like a strange thing to say is the first time you remember laughing. But when I joke about the fact that my mom smacked us and stuff, you know, cause we're like, you know, I was born in 1975. So, you know, we still got hit and everything. So my mom used to like smack us in the normal way of that time. 
the the when she stopped hitting us was the moment when she started hitting me and I just found it hilarious <laughs> and and I started laughing and she stopped hitting us after that and my brothers still bring it up it's like do you remember the time you started laughing at mom when she was hitting us and she never hit us anymore and I kind of regret that because the mental torture that came after was much, much worse. I, I would have taken, I would have taken the slap over the silence any time. You know, for the rest of my life, I was like, "What's wrong, mom?" It's like, "Oh, nothing." It's like, "Oh, it doesn't feel like nothing." <laughs> please, please tell me what's wrong. <laughs> so anyway, she said, she said, bring that up. But that was definitely, I mean, that wasn't my first memory of yeah. laughter. Nor was it like a positive memory. But I do just remember when it stopped hurting, which is probably a good. Uh, it's it's really in defense of my mom that she wasn't hitting us that hard, you know, that by the time I guess I was eight, you know, uh, her slaps were, were just hilarious. I love that, though. You you so much prefer your mom or dad to be angry rather than disappointed. It's like you oh prefer them to, to lash out than to be like, do you know what? It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what it, you know what it is. You're too young to figure out what it is. You know, like I preferred it to be to be done you know i prefer to them to just come out with it and be done rather than just the the stink in the air that you had to try to decipher what is this smell but i feel something i'm just not sure what it is uh eventually we would ask my father about it and he'd be like i haven't figured it out either we're we're, we're in this together guys we're in this together <laughs> Des, I know you mentioned, um, you know, when you got into the isolation row, that was kind of when you realised, you know, you could make people laugh. But what was, what's your first memory of feeling laughed at? You know, maybe in a bad way. No, well, I have, I have at least two of those. The first one was, I was in third grade. We, we can, somebody can Google. <laughs> somebody uh, yeah. can Google what the, the equivalent, but I guess I was eight. And, uh, I thought it was hilarious to put two pens up my nose and a pen across my, my lip like a mustache. And of course, like an idiot, I leaned forward, I hit the desk. And, you know, a lot of people think this is like horrific because there was also that thing of you could put a pen up your nose and that it can jam up and kill you, right? But I did actually hit my nose on the desk. I hit, my, I hit the pen on the desk and it was fine. I just got like a shock. And then my nose started bleeding. It wasn't, it wasn't anything as dramatic as like, oh my God, you could have died. But it was quite sore and uh, my nose started bleeding and like everybody was like laughing at me, like the joke was on me, yeah. which, you know, you would think is not like, you know, not like a big deal, except that about four years ago, I did a show in New York. You know, I don't do that many shows in New York until very recently. So all these girls that I knew growing up came to my show and when I walked down on stage, one of them actually had on a stick uh, an enlarged picture of my head from like second or third grade. And they were like holding, you know, holding it up like like a flag, like, go on, Desi. Uh, but they were New York girls. And we did the show. We had a laugh. And then when I got off stage, they they were coming up to like chat and they said, do you remember when you jammed the pen up your nose and you started bleeding? <laughs> like they actually they actually remembered it. Uh, so, so that was quite embarrassing. Uh, and then the other time was we're a little older. We're teenagers and we're all hanging out. So then you're like, you care about girls. And we were hanging out in my house. And for some reason they went through my underwear drawer. What? 
Yes. And there was like white. They, yeah, I know. There was like white underwear that had like, I guess when my mother washed it, there was like blue jeans had like leaked on it. So my underwear had become a little blue, I guess, around where my penis would be. And uh, they were they sang Blue Moon to me for like three weeks, which, of course, <laughs> like when you're 13 is like fucking hilarious. I don't know why it was hilarious, but I just remember being like so embarrassed that I was the Blue Moon guy, even though like, you know, now, of course, it's totally silly. It was the joke. The joke was definitely on me. <laughs> what were you like? Oh, Yo, you know, what's another one? This is actually this is a little more sinister. But when I was in the swim team, I'm just remembering this now. What, so Irish men would never know uh, what it's like to be uncircumcised in a circumcised uh, majority. Because, hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, hang on. Rewind a second. What are you talking? Is about? that too much? Is that too team? much for? Yeah. Well, well, I, 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 I'm setting the context here. So. Basically, most guys in America are circumcised. I, I, this is not a dirty story. This is a story about uh, just normal men stuff, right? Right, right. So, and I, I was the only one of my three brothers not circumcised because I was born in London to my great shame, which we were joking about before. But so I wasn't circumcised, right? right? Uh, which is actually like I think the majority of the planet. You know, male circumcision is a very strange thing. But anyway, we won't get into that very you know kind of modern topic of whether it's healthy or not. <laughs> Anyway, long story short, I never really, I wasn't really aware of the differences. I knew that I was a little different to my brothers, but I wasn't kind of aware why, right? Yeah, yeah. Until one day, you know, so what, you know, you're changing in the lockers and I never cared about changing in the locker. I never cared about people looking at my ding dong. It was just like you, the, 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 the naivety, the innocence of youth. And then suddenly this one guy points at my uncircumcised penis, which is different to theirs, right? And he was like, oh my God, it looks like an anteater, you know? Look at this guy, look, he's got, he's got, got like an anteater. What the, what the, what's going on with your thing? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean what's going on with my thing? This is the way yours came out too. And they, they you know, I, I mean, I didn't have a response at the time. I was just embarrassed. And I, I toweled up in the, I toweled up in the, in the locker rooms for years until the, what do they call the, unintended consequences of life i moved to ireland and suddenly i had a normal penis again <laughs> i moved to ireland and suddenly i was in the locker room and everybody had their genitalia the way that god had originally made it i was back to a land of hooded penises and i was so happy i was so happy until you know, obviously, I started comparing size, but that that was that was that was the next level of of being uncomfortable with my body. But at least I wasn't the odd one out anymore. That is so. That's it's funny, but it's also kind of sad. Like, did it make you self conscious? Oh, it made me totally like like a hundred percent. It made me totally self conscious. Like so much so that I can visualize the length of the bench of the locker rooms at Bayside High School. Uh, it was during a swim meet. It wasn't a practice night. I remember that because they always opened up more of the locker room on a swim meet night. And uh, just just this guy. And it took me a second to realize he was talking about me. And then they were all like laughing at me. But, you know, like that's a lot. Because one thing when guys are laughing at you, it's another thing when they're laughing at your dick. <laughs> you know, that's like that's some pretty that's some like deep stuff there. We're talking deep. Right. So uh, it was. It, you know, I mean, it's 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 a good moment for that question, right? It's a, it's the epitome <laughs> of that question, but of course, it has the great uh, the happy ending of moving to Ireland. You know, there's so many so many positive things about me moving to Ireland, including having a normal penis again. <laughs> pardon, sorry, pardon the pun of happy ending. Yeah, oh, ex exactly, Darren. Exactly, Darren. Yeah.
and 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 I, I, one one of these days I'm going to lead the campaign for like stopping circumcision. It's a very strange thing, but in Ireland it's not really an issue, but over here it's just the norm. You know. I leave that to you, Des. Thank you. I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that story, though. You know, <laughs> it's a great story. Great story. I, I, I've never told that story publicly. I actually kind of forgot. You know. I think another guy said it looked like I think another guy said it looked like a cheeseburger, which I never was able to figure out. But I guess he meant like 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 the the cheese. I, I have no idea why they said that. But he, I, I remember another guy said it's like a cheeseburger. Still to this day, I like I don't get it. TMI, TMI, get, TMI. Sorry, too much. Sorry. Okay, Des. <laughs> Des, the moment when if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. I mean, Darren, I have so many of those like. You know, because, well, whatever, I've lost both parents. I had testicular cancer. I stopped drinking when I was 19. Like, I, I have so many. So I'll, I'll, I'll share a few. We'll see which one sticks. The, the most recent one that we, we thought was hilarious was, so my mom was very sick, like, for like five years. But she had like a very, she had lung cancer surgery, and then she had a very bad reaction to the surgery. So we had this like year and a half where it was just like bad, like a lot of stress. So much so that she ended up in hospice care. But we didn't really put her in hospice care because we thought she was going to die. It was just that she was sick enough to get hospice care. And the American insurance system is so complicated that you really get a lot of services for free if you're entitled to hospice care. So we said we put her in hospice care, but we weren't really thinking that she was going to die. But she still gets like a hospice doctor. So like a doctor that's in the business of looking after people that are on their way to death. However... My mother was not on her way to death, and she certainly had not lost her her spunk, her her fight. You know, I don't, I don't, I. My mother was a was an amazing woman, but she was a tough cookie. You know, when my dad died at my father's wake, everybody was like, "Oh my God, he was the loveliest guy," and everybody at my mother's wake was like, "She was formidable." <laughs> like, it's just like a whole, like a whole different vibe, right? Anyway, she gave this doctor such a hard time in that first hospice session. I mean, the stories are endless of just like every problem that she had. Nobody did anything right. She was a tough, tough patient. So needless to say, five years later or whatever it was, I guess in the end, about three and a half to four years later, she ends up back in hospice care. And this time <laughs> she's close to death. And like, obviously anyone who's been through this knows that it's all very stressful, but you take the funny moments when they come. Yeah. So Dr. Schwartz is his name. Dr. Schwartz comes back and my mom is like, you know, she's, she's dying and uh, she's very placid. And uh, Dr. Schwartz turns to me and my brother and he goes, it's nice to see her so calm. Oh my God. <laughs> and I mean, listen, he knew us. He, he had been around us a lot and he knew that we were people that liked to joke around. And obviously that was a risk. That was a risk that he took, okay? Yeah. Because it's, it's a very inappropriate joke at an inappropriate time, except that for us, it was the most appropriate joke you could possibly make because we loved our mother dearly, but we were not in denial about who she was. And we'd been through Helen back and we were thinking the same thing. <laughs> I love that though. I, I love that it showed how comfortable he must have been with you guys at that point, that he knew that you were the type of people who could absolutely laugh along with him. Oh yeah, I mean we we were we we were joking. I mean I have so many like there was I I I've had so many like inappropriate moments around death that just kept us cheery. Uh, actually, right, 
right I, I we'll see if this is funny but right after my mom died so she was still like asleep on the I just got the reminder that we're we're doing the podcast but the <laughs> reminder is late um my mom died and uh I guess it was like there was some people in the house and you know my mother had just been five years of like uh you know back and forth in and out of the hospitals and my brother goes uh this is sad for us but they're cheering in Medicare right now. Oh my! God. <laughs> He's like, it's like when the it's like when they when they landed the space shuttle in space camp. Everybody's like, yeah, come on, finally! Oh my! God. Uh, so that, that was so like a funny dark. A lot of dark. You know, we had a lot of dark humor around death. And then when my dad died, so my my father died, and uh, you know, so like you're in hospice care. So like you're in the house. My my mother was in the house, and my dad was in the house. So the funny thing is that like. Your parent dies and it's just you, you know? Yeah. You're just there with like a dead body. <laughs> you know? It's like it's like okay, so we, we we have a we have a dead body in the house here, you know? So you wait for you wait for the funeral people to come, right? So you're just like hanging out with this like, you know, dead person. So my dad was very like vain, you know? He really cared about what he looked like. So when you die, you lose control of your face. These are like all the crazy things that you never think about when, you know, when you've lost a parent. You know, like, you just don't think about these things until you're in front of them. Yeah. So, like, the minute he really, the minute he died, like, he just, his face was different. And his mouth dropped in a way that just looked like he wasn't in control of his face. And I knew that he wouldn't like that if strangers were coming and looking at him. So, myself, my brother Aiden, and my mom were in the room, and we were like... You know, we we're trying to fix his mouth, you know? So I was moving his mouth, and then I, I can impersonate my father. So I was like, oh, come on, man. Can you? <laughs> I started like moving his mouth like he was like, can you stop touching my face, man? Oh, come on, man. And like, I mean, obviously, you guys don't know my dad, so it's, it's hard for you to see the humor in it. But to us, it was just <laughs> hilarious. But also, it kind of made us feel like, like he was still, you know, we were still in it together. Of course. By the I way, do you want to know? Go ahead, Darren. No, I'm just saying it like it's like when you when I picture my own death or funeral or whatever, I would love to think that people feel like they can have the crack and make jokes and and, you know, keep the sense of humor that I love to have going throughout the the time of my death. Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, I think that's a, quite an Irish thing, too, whether that's to do with not really dealing with emotions or just I, I mean, yeah. I, I think. I, I, I'm, I'm a fan, you know, I'm a fan of that. I was going to say just before you jumped in that the other funny thing about my dad dying is people always like, what's the last thing that they said to you? You know, why well, is this very emotional thing that they said to you? The last words my father ever said were, can you guys please stop talking? <laughs> Those were my father's. <laughs> last word because obviously we were like in the room you know the guy's dying he's on like morphine you know and we've just gotten very used to you know looking after this dying man so we obviously were just like yapping away about whatever and he found the energy to tell us to shut the fuck up and those were my dad's last words you know not 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 as dramatic can you guys please stop talking it's like finally in death he got to say what he probably wanted to say to me my whole entire life will you ever just shut up you love the sound of your own voice please just be silent and let me die 
I love that you've shared those stories though, because obviously I think a fear that creeps into everyone's mind. Like I'm, I'm so lucky to have both of my parents still, and every now and then. And great know, parents, the, can I just? I mean, I'm sure everyone points it out, but I, I would, I would, if if I was a jealous person, I would almost be jealous that I didn't have parents like yours because they really are good crack. Now I have to say, very, very impressed with your parents. When I met them, I was very impressed, and they invited me. To, to their house. They said, come over anytime. The girls don't have to be there. Just come over and have dinner. They actually literally were like, just come and hang out. I thought that was very impressive. Well, I have to let you in on a little secret because though you obviously did Dancing with the Stars the year that Avian did it and I know for a fact, well, look at, don't tell anyone, but you were definitely their favourite. Of all the other celebs on the show that year, you were Eugene and Claire's favourite, Des. Oh, that's great. Well, I really, they really are good crack now. I have to say, like meeting them and also seeing them pop up in your stories and stuff. I, I'm, I'm always very impressed, especially with their, their zest for life and everything. But you know, you know what though, in saying that, and this is not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to for, you know, like foreshadow the, the loss of your parents, but like you guys are all so close. And I, I like, not that I'm not close with my parents, but I spent so long away from home. Like, I feel like one day, whenever that day comes and you'll be like, oh, Des has a lot of experience with grief. I actually, I, I feel like I would miss your parents more. Oh my God. Oh my God. We can't talk about this anymore. I'm not able for it. We need to move on. Okay. I'm sorry. You can cut, you can cut that out, but I'm just, I'm just kidding around. But that, that, that goes with the dark humor, you know? Okay. Des, your no laughing matter moment in life. And I know you've talked about so like, well, actually, it hasn't really been that heavy. It's been actually light, um, even though it has been around death, the, the talk about your parents. But your absolute no laughing matter moment in life, a time where there was no room for laughter. I know it's hard because I've turned every bloody serious moment into a laugh. Like I actually said that to Hannah when, when I was looking at this, you know, like I, I knew you were going to ask me about the no laughing matter. And I was like, okay, so, you know, I, I, I had a problem with booze when I was younger. And, uh, and then I stopped drinking and then I got testicular cancer. And then my, my lost both my parents. And every single one of those events has stand-up material. <laughs> like, like I, I made a joke, like you can go on YouTube right now and find me joking about every single thing that I just mentioned. And I, I got testicular cancer I found out on a, on, a, on a Thursday morning and I was on stage in the laughter lounge that night. Now, that's not to say that those situations aren't no laughing matters. But, you know, th this is a bit where people don't joke around when they talk about this normally, right? Like, honestly, the, the, the really no laughing matters stuff for me, if I'm to be deadly serious, and I think it's good to revisit this in this kind of context of, like, mental health, the way that people talk about mental health these days. Because, like, when I was drinking bad when I was a teenager... And like my drink was bad. You know, sometimes Irish people hear me say that I stopped drinking when I was 19. They make some assumption that it's some sort of like American sensitivity to alcohol, you know. But, you know, they don't really know my story. And like I used to black out and get in fights with my friends. You know, like a lot of stuff that like was really horrific, like really, really bad. And I was in boarding school in another country, no family. And, you know, when I was 17, I was kind of peeking out on like a bad run of alcohol, like a lot of negative experiences. And one of them was, and I, I won't mention any names, but one of them was, uh, I was going home for Easter vacation. So I was actually going back to New York for Easter vacation. And I did, uh, a buddy of mine, my best friend at the time, actually, was, uh, he was going up to like do an interview for Bolton Street. You know, he was, we were, you know, we're doing all leave and search stuff. So he wanted to go up and check out Bolton Street or he had to do an interview. I can't remember, but either way, he was going up to Dublin the same day. 
So he was like, let's go up together and like go on a session, you know? And uh, so we ended up getting absolutely annihilated in Kennedy's pub. You know, it's like on the end of Nassau Street there. Yeah. To the point where I blacked out and like, just like lost it. You know, one of the, like these like blackout rage incidents. I had like a terrible uh, blackout rage incident. And like that, I lost that friendship from alcohol. And it was after that incident, I went back to New York and uh, I, my dad was going to an AA meeting and I actually said, dad, I'll go to the meeting. I, I, you know, I guess like in his mind, he was thinking I was just like trying to hang out with my dad. But, you know, I remember being at that AA meeting and just like listening to all these guys. And then my dad leans over and he goes, when it comes to you to share, you don't, you don't have to say anything. And I, I wasn't going to say anything. It didn't come to me to share, but had it come to me to share, I would have been like, I identified with this stuff way more than I was expecting. Right. Okay. So that period, that period was like really dark. And the funny thing is that, you know, in those early days when I stopped drinking recovery chat and all that stuff, a lot of people back then focused on like the root cause of your problem is the alcohol. You get rid of the alcohol and like everything's going to be okay. And there's, there was an element of truth to that. But of course, if I was 17 now, Des Bishop, that child living in today's world, clearly somebody would tell me that I'm depressed, I have anxiety, and I need to talk to somebody about the demons in my mind. And of course, I was self-medicating with alcohol, but it wasn't working. And I was having seriously bad results from it uh, to the point where it, like, it affected my, my friendships. They didn't even let me return to St. Peter's College Wexford. I mean, if you Google St. Peter's College Wexford, you will see how bad that institution is. It's literally an institution that has done some of the most horrific things to children, but they wouldn't let me return because of the, the, the rumors that were going around about my drinking, right? So I, I, I'm glad that I stopped drinking at 19. I was just lucky that my parents just drilled it into my head that I was never gonna have a good out outcome from alcohol. But I have to say, if I were to go back to that 17 year old now, I'd say, yeah, you have to start drinking. and you need some therapy and you need to, you know, talk to somebody about depression and anxiety. But of course, none of that chatter existed. In fact, when I was in another college, when I was in another school the next year, I went to the, the priest and I said, a guy came in to talk about alcoholism. And afterwards, I said to the guy, I have a problem. And he said, I'll take you to an AA meeting. And I went to the priest and I said, I want to go to an AA meeting with that guy. And the priest said, you're too young to be an alcoholic. You don't need to go. Oh my <laughs> so God. it was a very, but that's not bad. It's just, it was a different time. It's just, you know? it's just, not, it's just a classic, it's just classic Ireland. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, I think nowadays, I don't even think that I would have had to say something to somebody. I really think nowadays that I would have been pulled aside. Now I could be wrong. I could be like, have a little bit of a sort of a, a airy fairy view of how young people and their mental issues are being dealt with nowadays. But I do think somebody would have pulled me aside and said like, what's going on for you? You know, you've got some anger, you've got some stuff going on. Uh, but I'm just lucky that I stopped drinking because I just had that, I had that, different people have different reactions with alcohol, but I definitely had that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing where I, I could, I could, I could flip. That's why I stopped. People say, why did you stop? And it's like, well, it's just the outcomes were terrible. And but that would probably be, go ahead. And do you mind me asking, what was going on? Like, you don't have to tell me, but like, do you know what the root, because, you know, 
what was the root of you feeling angry or feeling depressed or anxious? Well, if you read between the lines and the ways that I describe my mom, you might get a little bit of a hint. <laughs> but that that's a jokey answer. No, you know, listen, I had a lot of I had a lot of anxiety growing up as a child. I grew up in a very anxious house. Yeah. All this language, all this language is new to me. Even having the freedom to say it in those terms is new to me. Like I didn't didn't understand that. I mean, in fairness to my mother, she understood it finally like you know, after my dad died and everything, like my mother finally understood it too. Yeah. That like, there was just no need for that stress, but we grew up with a lot of stress. And like, you know, it's funny because I went to this therapist one time and he said to me that, you know, you probably don't realize how much abuse you grew up with or certainly like emotional torture that you grew up with because it's not really spoken about, you know? And particularly back in the day, there was always this thing of you can't speak ill of your parents, but like, it wasn't ideal. And it was my mom's, my mother and father. I, I shouldn't just throw it on my mom, but they had their own demons. And I, I really have a lot of empathy for them that they had their demons. But you also have to separate the stress that they created for you, right? Yeah. And yeah. of course, I've ended up a fine human being. But <laughs> back then, I was a 17-year-old boy that went to another country. And the reason why I went to another country was I hated my life in America. I had been bullied really bad in the school that I was in. My home life was so stressful, you know, like, so it just seemed like the most incredible escape. Everybody's always like, how did your parents send you to Ireland? It's like, I don't really know how they let me go, but I was dying to leave, yeah. you know? And I look back in hindsight and I see like a 14 year old boy today and I'm like, how would that child do in another country? <laughs> like, it just, baffles me yeah. that I did that, you know? So I guess uh, there was a lot going on. A lot of it had to do with anxiety, depression, self-esteem issues. You know, it, the, the list goes on and on. But I also, like, wasn't put in a great situation where I could deal with it. Like, I was left to my own devices, like, a little bit too much. I'm glad now it's made me into the person that I am. But, you know, I think there's a couple of bits missing. No, as you said... You know? The fine human being that you are, Jess. Yeah, but I like I. I'm, you asked me like in a serious way, so I've shared very honestly. Of course. Uh, but like that—that's definitely part of what what made me as an individual, like having to get through that, and obviously suffering, mental, you know, like you know, emotions, like all that stuff. It's it's all relative. I I, I don't think that I had like the worst childhood of all time. But I also don't deny the the pain that it caused me. Cause it's like, what am I gonna do? Pretend that like, actually it wasn't that bad so I won't deal with it. It's like, you gotta be honest about what it means for you, you know? Yeah. And I have friends that definitely had more difficult stuff and they've overcome it too. And I've had friends that have suffered with what I would consider to be possibly less difficult stuff and they've really struggled with it. But like none of those things have anything to do with each other. Everybody's like on their own journey. And if there's one thing I felt over the years is that, and I, you know, sometimes people say it's like an Irish thing. I don't really know if it's an Irish thing or not, but I do think that there's a tendency for people to think that they don't have the right to acknowledge what was difficult for them because it doesn't fit in what they consider to be suffering. You know, I, I, um, I really noticed that throughout COVID, you know, people don't feel like they have, as you said, the right to maybe express how they're suffering. Like say, for example, obviously a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people lost family members. 
And so people who maybe didn't go through those kind of things are kind of going, oh God, I'm, I can't complain. Like I do have a job, I do have this. But we've, we have all suffered in some way over the past year and a half, you know. And, and as you say, it's all relative. Yeah, plus, plus we all have our coping mechanisms, right? Like we all have our things that get us through. And like sometimes you got to sit down and you have to feel your feelings. And sometimes you just have to get on with life, right? That's like, that's part of the balance of your mental health. But it's not great when you're forced to just be with yourself that much more. It is a transition. It's not that easy to suddenly just be with yourself all the time or be with your family all the time. Like that's a difficult transition. And I found it tough. And I, I got to think that people found it very difficult. But of course, a lot of people don't feel like they have the right to acknowledge it. But I think if you look at the stats, we all suffered. I mean, it's a once in a century experience. If it ends up... Uh, causing people to talk about their mental health more than I than I think that's a positive. I mean, I think when you know, we're not going to get into like the issues of the day, but I even think that the Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka stuff, I think that it's great that they're talking about their mental health, but I also think that this is also connected to COVID. Like I think that COVID has caused everybody to find things that little bit more difficult and that's okay. It's yeah. like a very difficult thing that we've all adjusted to. Okay, Des, the person you always laugh with yeah, again, that's like a, that's like, I got a lot of people. And it's funny because, so I went to a coffee shop and I sat down with Hannah before the podcast to like prep a little bit, you know, because <laughs> I'm a performer. <laughs> and I'm like, I have to say the person I've always laughed with, I always laugh with, I guess you probably want me to say it's you. Right? I like, suddenly I was like, damn, this is, this is the wrong person to have this discussion with, you know? And uh, so I was like, of course I, I laugh with you, but I, you know, I, I don't think I would say you. And then, and, and she was like, really? And I was like, well, we only know each other a year. I was like, no, you be honest with me right now in this moment. If you were asked this question on a podcast, would you say me? I'm pretty sure you wouldn't. You know, I think you'd say me if I was sitting next to you, but I don't think you would. I, I don't think even though we're getting married, like, I don't think we're at that stage of our relationship. So it was very funny because this very positive thing of who's the person you like to laugh most with led to this moment of like, are we there yet? <laughs> I love that. I love it. But now I have to say that the, the, the thing that, that binded us when we met, like, of course, I was attracted to her, but. The thing that mattered most was that we, we made each other laugh, like from the get-go, right? Um, uh, uh, in fact, the opening joke of our relationship was she got in my car. Uh, I picked her up for our first date. She got in my car, and she was complaining about her parents because her parents made her come early, right? You know, so she was waiting for me for like 20 minutes in the heat. So she was ranting and raving about her annoying parents and how you know, she got stuck waiting in the heat for 20 minutes. And when she was done with her rant, I turned to her and I said, at least your parents are alive. And she busted her ass laughing, which again was a risk, like Dr. Schwartz. Uh, it yeah. was a risk. It was a risk, but she laughed and I laughed. And then that was like, okay, she gets my humor. I get her humor, but she's not the person. I, I, I think it's probably my brother, Mike, but I have so many, like, I feel like in Ireland, I feel like with Irish people and like Irish Americans, like all these like emotionally fucked up people that deal with everything through joking around. Uh, I think that's like, it's such a go-to mechanism that it's very hard to say one, but my brother Mike and, and my brother Aiden, but probably my brother Mike is one. Like when we get together and we just, we have our ways of just like joking around and nostalgia, it's easy to, to forget about life 
but I have a lot of them, you know, yeah. like I, I, I have like a lot of people that the minute I see them, I'm in like a better mood. You know what I mean? I love it. But, but do you ever find this? You have these people that you like find hilarious and you have your sense of humor and then you meet somebody like I've met Hannah and you, you bring them into that relationship and there's such a pressure because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes they don't find them that funny <laughs> and it's torturous. It's torturous because you're like, shit, I didn't realize this was just a me and him thing. This oh my God. Is, not... no, is it? I actually, it is such an interesting thing. Like say if your group of school friends meet your group of college friends and you then realize you're like, oh my God, do I have lo loads of weird, like do I masquerade with different senses of humor with different people? Because it, it doesn't overlap and you're like, oh God, am I a phony? You're, God, Darren, this is some deep stuff because you're like me. You're like a chameleon, but not in a negative way. Yeah. There's just, there's, there's a lot of parts of you and there's a lot of parts of me. And yes, I'm a people pleaser. And also I don't like to make people uncomfortable. I mean, sometimes these jokes maybe make people uncomfortable, but like in general, I like everybody to feel like it's okay. Like I can, I can sit with five Trump supporters and never let them know that they disgust me. You know, <laughs> yes. they, they could, yes. they could literally sit with me and think, Oh, I think he voted for Biden, but he gets it. You know, <laughs> like, like, like I can, I can, I can, you know, I can like, you know, fit in with anybody that's like a skill I, it's actually been part of my career and i think you understand that i don't think it's a negative thing but i do have chameleon like features the problem is that you do like you you sometimes you're like am i a phony because other people come and they're like this guy is an asshole <laughs> <laughs> you've just been in you've just been in denial about it for 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 like a long time I you know it's like the pressure you bring somebody to see a movie like you're like oh my god this movie is amazing i'm gonna go see it twice i'm gonna go see this movie again because i want you to see this movie so bad and then you're sitting in the cinema and you can't enjoy it because you can tell the other person's not liking it and you're like oh my god what did i do what you're like i'm so sorry that this movie that i have nothing to do with you know or like people that people that get upset about the weather, they like invite you to their house and then the weather's bad and they're like, I'm so sorry about the weather. And you're like, you, you're, you're not part of the, the solar system. <laughs> you haven't, you're not responsible. Sorry, the, 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 the movie bit, that is, that is so true. Or like, you know, when you say you watch a video on Instagram and it's like a minute long, and you're like, oh my God, it's so funny. Look at this. And you go to show it to someone and like 10 seconds of that video feels like a lifetime when you're waiting for them to laugh. Oh my God, you, 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 you're nailing it so much. And Hannah and I have a very similar sense of humor sometimes, but she she has a very different sense of humor when it comes to like meme culture. Yes. You know, especially when it comes to like stuff that's just funnier for women, not in a negative way, but it's just like stuff that like hits more buttons for her than it does for me. And I think it's great that she finds it funny, but sometimes she gets upset when she shows it for me. And it's like, I'm sorry, that that's like... <laughs> That meme, that meme isn't for me. That's the wonder of the internet. That's not popping up in my algorithm. My, you, know, the, the, you know, the algorithm knew not to show that to me. I don't know why you didn't know not to show that to me, right? But on the flip side, right? Uh, like every 10th meme she shows me makes me laugh really hard because I'm not like a meme guy. I'm like a relic, you know? I'm like born in 1975. Like, I'm not like, I'm not like getting a lot of memes. I, I don't see a lot of memes, but like every now and then she shows me a meme that like makes me die laughing. 
And it brings her so much joy to show me a meme that actually makes it laugh that the nine other times where she's disappointment is definitely over. Like the one time is worth it for all the disappointments. I wonder will it ever be used as a breakup line? You know, it's like, we don't understand each other. We don't get each other's algorithms. Yeah, the algorithm knows me better than you know me. You know, will will there will there be a time? Will there be a time when people will have to actually go to the algorithm to find out if they're compatible? <laughs> <laughs> will that actually be a thing where the algorithm will be like, nah, this isn't going to work out? And then a lot of people will be like, what the fuck does the algorithm know? And then two years later, the algorithm will be like, I told you, welcome back. <laughs> Oh my god. Okay. Tess Bishop, a time where you had the last laugh. Oh, well, I mean, I guess I guess the one that jumps out to me is actually the one that I opened my first ever stand-up special with back in 2003. And I named them in my stand-up special, but I won't name them now. But there was a priest in St. Peter's. And I guess he wasn't the worst guy in that he just physically abused us as opposed to any other type of abuse. But he was a tough guy, you know, and he was of his time. And, you know, in my 45-year-old mature mind, I probably wouldn't have had so much bravado uh, to open my stand-up special by kind of like ripping on him. However, he did have that old-school Catholic, you know, tough love kind of attitude and he would often call me a stupid, loud-mouthed American. And they all called me Yank, by the way. They all called me the Yank, even the teachers. They all called me the Yank, which was kind of fine, but at times it felt kind of derogatory, yeah. truth be told. You know, like, I, I don't mind. I'm not, like, I'm not like a moaner. But there were times when, like, teachers would be like, you stupid, loud-mouthed Yank, that it was just like, you're the adults. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. You're demeaning me. Right. But like, it wasn't that bad, but like, it was annoying. There was a few of them. I won't name a few because I actually I've gotten in trouble by like speaking publicly about these people in the past. Right. So I'm not going to name them now, but some of them did demean me a lot about the fact that I was like a loud mouth. Now, I had great times in St. Peter's and I had some big moments, like moments where I realized that I could be a performer, you know, like got up in front of the whole school and did stuff. And it was like very exciting for me, like really highlights of my youth were like fun moments that I had in St. Peter's where I got the opportunity to get in front of everybody. And it was like amazing. Right. So my experience in St. Peter's was actually quite a positive one. These are just like funny stories about that. But this guy was, he, you know, you're not going to find a lot of love amongst people for how tough this guy was. And he always called me a stupid, loud-mouthed American. And he would always say that one of these days, that big mouth is going to get you in trouble. So obviously, when I became a successful comedian in Ireland, I had to open my special by reminding him that he would say that to me because my big mouth... I did pretty well with it. No, oh. he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. It also got me in trouble. <laughs> so he was 50% right in that it would get me in trouble, but it would also bring me a lot of success. Are there many things that I've said that I would love to take back? 100%, but I think that's a, an occupational hazard. But yes, I, I, I would say that on that one, I had the last laugh. Yes! Yes, queen! <laughs> But, you know, I don't, you know, sometimes I don't like, I don't like a lot of this, like, in retrospect, going back and judging people because, and I also don't like people like times were different, but like, 
I, I don't dismiss these people's behavior, but I also think that there has to be an element of understanding the times. And I do think that there were parts of this guy where his heart was in the right place. He just was like misguided, you know? Wait. So I, I'm not 100% dismissing what he did, but I, I think if you if you put that into today's context, it would be completely unacceptable, you know? Of course, but it's nice for you to look back and be like, hmm, an interesting point he made. Yeah, and you know, I know that he was annoyed by it because people told me. Yes! <laughs> people were like, People were like, he is not happy with the fact that you put that on your stand-up special ah, like, what are you well, gonna he do he'll get over it fuck off <laughs> okay des if laughter wasn't the best medicine what would be uh well i mean a pint of ice cream a pint of ice cream is too much okay however it's not so much that you're gonna like absolutely hate yourself okay but there is an indulgence because you're not supposed to eat the whole pint of ice cream. But it really is impossible to open the pint of ice cream or, you know, the, the, the Haagen-Dazs size I'm talking about. Like, like you know, the, the, that sort of like mid-sized tub of ice cream. Yeah. The, you're not supposed to eat that whole thing. But it's so indulgent to be in front of, like, your favorite show and just, like, think, feck it. I'm, I'm, I'm eating the whole thing. And, and there's always a problem with a behavior that starts with, like, they can all fuck off. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think I think Eleanor Tiernan had a joke like that, you know, about about booze. But like, you know that you're you know that you're like doing something wrong when you have to sort of like curse the world to make it okay. But it's still so nice to know that like you're gonna keep going, you know? Because yeah. like a scoop is never enough. A scoop is the right amount. You'll get the joy of ice cream without the guilt of too much. But a pint a pint is like enough that it feels indulgent, but the guilt is like manageable. Do you know I what? I consider that like a man. It's something about ice what? cream being cold that almost like if it was a if it was a tub of like hot chocolate fondue or something, then you'd be like, oh my god, I had a pint of that. But the fact that it's cold and it just kind of slides around your mouth. And do you know what? Actually, in the first lockdown, Patty and I, how we survived, we literally—I swear, I'm not even joking—for about three weeks straight, we had a pint of ice cream every night. And then I was like up on the weighing scales and I was like, wait a second, why am I up a stone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of calories. I mean, it's like, I think a full one of those bad boys, depending on the flavor, is like 900 to 1,000 calories. So like essentially it's like another dinner, like you're doubling up on your like your dinner cows. But uh, the texture of it is so important. Actually, a lot of people don't understand like that texture of food is really important. Like I just, I could just eat ice cream forever. Honestly, like if they could turn every meal into like cold ice cream texture, I probably would just live on ice cream. But I, I but I, I, I love the, it's so bad that there's certain textures of food. Like I like mushy food. A lot of people make fun of me, but I like stews that like casseroles that have been sitting around for three days. I like mushy food, but part of it is the texture. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I have to like out myself. I'm but with the, you. my other my other medicine is um like a swim in the cold ocean. I feel like you've never walked out of the ocean feeling worse. No matter how cold or hot or beautiful or unbeautiful it is. Uh, an o the ocean always makes you feel better. Now, of course, like going to the gym, like all these things, 
in your mind, you could not do it. You're like, I don't, you know, I just, I, you find excuses, but you go to the gym, you feel better, but definitely you get in that ocean, no matter how cold it is, when you get out, you feel better. Even if your hands are so cold, your fingers are so numb that you can't button your shirt. Yeah. You still feel better. And I was glad to see that a lot of Irish people leaned in on that during the pandemic, but that is definitely one of my things. And there's, there's very rarely an ocean, no matter what time of the year, that if I'm near, I won't think, feck it, I'll go commando for the rest of the day. I'm getting in <laughs> and just going in my jocks. You know? I love it. Okay, are you ready for your quick fire, Andes? Yeah, I, I, have to, I, I have to try to remember. Go for it. Okay, the actor you always laugh at. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I honestly, I couldn't come up with that one. You know, like I, I, I really was like racking my brain. But I guess if I would like, and in a push, I would say Jack Black around like the high fidelity days. Love you it. Know? Love it. Jack Black around those days really did make me laugh. School of Rock, like School of Rock, probably underrated. You know, yeah. School of Rock, like absolutely hilarious. So I would say that period of Jack Black was like high laugh rate for me. The actress you always laugh at? Sharon Horgan. Legend. And and that's not just because she's Irish. It's just like she nails it. Like Catastrophe, to my mind, like like the the episode one of Catastrophe is a pilot episode, but like it it is just like, to me, perfection. I actually wrote a script. It didn't get picked up. It's not like one of these things like I'm working on a script, but I wrote a script and like 100% studied Catastrophe's first episode as just like a format for humor. Like she absolutely nails it. I mean, she's killing it now, obviously, but uh, Catastrophe to me is like a perfect show. Like I, I just, I couldn't get enough of that show. And she, she's just so funny. Like you watch her in interviews. She's not comfortable in interviews, but she just comes out with these like these gems all the time. So she's like my, my perfect funny woman. <laughs> Hannah won't like that. Oh, listen, that's the other. You can't you? you I, I'm answering the question you, you asked me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No? I'm sorry. Okay, Des, <laughs> the, move, the movie you always laugh at. I mean, the first one comes to mind is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's very much like a movie of my generation. I, I, I fear, I fear that the Gen Zs are, are, are going to think that Ferris Bueller is an asshole, though. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know if Ferris Bueller holds up and. You know, I I think I think maybe if I watched it again, he'd be a bit of a dick. But I haven't watched it in a while. As we mentioned earlier, it was of its time. You know. Yeah, I heard recently that they actually had to kind of put in the principal character to soften Ferris. That actually, in early viewings or early readings of the script, they felt that Ferris came across as too much of an asshole. So they actually had to like sort of soften Ferris and like up this kind of villain character to give Ferris a bit more uh, likability. But Ferris Bueller's Day Off is like one of the great movies of my time. Beverly Hills Cop, you know, stuff like that. The comedian that always makes you laugh, Des. Well, Dave Chappelle always makes me laugh. Uh, and American stuff, you know, he just gets up and he, he, I find him hilarious. And But an, I, I, Dylan Moran is my Irish, uh, always makes me laugh. I mean, they all make me laugh. Like, of course, like Tommy <laughs> always makes me laugh. You know, the, the, the thing about like, you know, really good comics... Like a lot of times people don't see them live, you know, they just see their specials. So they don't really see them like, like messing around, but like there's certain comics like Tommy, like Dylan Moore, like Dave Chappelle, that just when they get loose, it's hilarious. And actually, uh, can I just say, it's not just cause he's my friend, but if ever there is like a misunderstood Irish comedian, it is Jason Byrne because live, 
live, not on camera, even when his live stuff is filmed, you don't experience the genius of Jason Byrne's improvisational skills. So actually, I should have said Jason Byrne live, actually, is the comedian that always makes me laugh. Because like, there are just moments where it kicks off for him that like, you'll you'll die like we did this charity show right before the pandemic it's funny like 800 people michael mcintyre everybody at at the at the the three arena like like a month and a half before it all shut down and you know mcintyre was on dara breen was on tommy was on you know i was on it's like like a killer lineup right but jason like steals the show but of course all these clowns online they don't see that you know they don't know these moments jason was like so funny talking about his dad like, I, I can't remember the last time I laughed as much. And finally, Des Bishop, your best or worst joke. Here's a terrible joke that I found funny when I, when I heard it, but nobody finds it funny. Um, you know, uh, a man and a woman are on the elevator, and the man says, uh, can I smell your pussy? And she says, no. And he says, oh, it must be your feet. Oh, stop. <laughs> What do you, come on, you asked for the best or worst joke. I mean, these are not like, you know, this is just like joke jokes, you know? Uh, and yes. nobody likes it. Come on. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes it. But when I heard it, I thought it was funny. But, I, you know, I don't tell it anymore. <laughs> uh, Until now, Des Bishop, I'm so delighted you took the time to chat to me. And I'm also so delighted that while we were chatting and while you were in your apartment in New York, the most stereotypical thing happened. A siren went by. Yeah, like right when I was talking about something like really emotional. I know. You know, I was thinking that's like the, that's like the Irish, that's like the Irish emotion police. They're like, well, watch yourself now. You're going too far now with the emotions. You better, you better pull it back now. <laughs> I was the, <laughs> it was the the Wexford Gardaí being like, don't be talking about your emotions that much. No one like you know. So uh, anyway, that that was funny timing. By the way, if if people are interested in hearing my dark humor about my mom, it, it has been over a year and a half, but I was halfway through a tour about my mom when the pandemic happened. So I've postponed dates three times, but they still exist in 2022. I will be going back. There's actually, I, you know, I did jokes last night about from, from Mia Mama and literally society has changed so much. I used to have a joke about that. We will have, uh, we'll have virtual funerals was a joke in the show as if no. that was something from the fi- and then last night i'm doing the joke and i'm like holy shit this has happened in the meantime what? like literally virtual funerals now it now happened which was a punchline in my show now they happened that's crazy so that's how much life weird. has changed but you do yeah. all of your tour dates and there are some available tickets on desbishop.net am i right Wow, look at you with the research. Because I, I messed up .com and I can't get it back, so now I'm .net. I love that. It's so 1998. I know. It's just, what can I do? But it, it, it works. Desbishop.net. Des, you know? thank you gotta... so much for taking the time to share the laughs of your life. Oh, and you can also at Desbishop me on Instagram, since you have so many Instagram people. All right, you got, you got enough plugs. You got enough plugs. Come on, what? get out of here. Why not get a few, why not get a few followers, you know? <laughs> thank you, Des. Darren, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Laughs of Your Life podcast with Des Bishop. I hope you enjoyed it. Lots of fabulous guests to come this season. That was just guest number two of 12 guests. So make sure you like, subscribe, rate, review and all those other things. This season of the Laughs of Your Life podcast is brought to you by TK Maxx, where there's something for absolutely everyone all under one roof. Olive Esler is the guest booker this season and this podcast is recorded with Collaborative Studios. Music